We continue in our sermon series, Everybody's Favorite Heresies, today. And our text comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, a few verses from chapter 3 and a few other verses from chapter 5. As we come to God's word, let us pray. Prepare our hearts to accept your word, O God. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may obey your will and rest in your grace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. But since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely, therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Well, at the risk of oversharing what happens in the marriage between your co-pastors, I want to tell you about a phrase that is oft repeated by my beloved, who is not here to defend himself. (laughs) When he says this, he says it with a mischievous grin. It's a line from a poem, and I'll read you the poem in a moment. But when this line is spoken, Jarrett has done something helpful around the house. He's unloaded the dishwasher. He's put the twins to bed. He's taken the compost to church. So I say, thanks. And he doesn't say, you're welcome, in response. He will grin and say, he was sure as a boy could be. Billy Collins is the one who coined it. In his poem, which is not about marriage at all, but a relationship between a parent and child, it goes like this. The other day, I was ricocheting slowly off the blue walls of this room, moving as if underwater from typewriter to piano, from bookshelf to an envelope lying on the floor, when I found myself in the L section of the dictionary where my eyes fell upon the word lanyard. No cookie nibbled by a French novelist could send one into the past more suddenly. A past where I sat at a workbench at camp by a deep Adirondack lake, learning how to braid long, thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift from my mother. I had never seen anyone use a lanyard or wear one, if that's what you did with them. 
But that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I had made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted spoons of medicine to my lips, laid cold face cloths on my forehead, and then led me out into the airy light. She taught me to walk and swim, and I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said, and here is clothing and a good education. And here is your lanyard, I replied, <laughs> which I made with a little help from a counselor. Here is a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. And here I wish to say to her now is a smaller gift, not the worn truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took the two-tone lanyard from my hand, I was sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. We are people, it seems to me, who like to be even. We don't really like being indebted to others. Maybe we don't mind being needed because it means we have something to offer, but heaven help us if we are seen as needy. We are a people, a nation, really, that builds its identity around being self-sufficient. Handouts are actually put-downs. Behind success is hard work. Behind good grades is study. Behind performance is practice. We earn our stripes. We're a university town, for goodness sake, where there are tenure tracks. We've been raised, whether explicitly or because it's just the soup we swim in, we've been raised on earning our own way, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Which is why, when we come from out there to in here, and hear this word, and gather around that font, and find ourselves seated at that table, we are often dumbfounded flustered, perhaps resistant and grumpy about what we encounter here because it's so different. We encounter the grace of God. Here, this word says no one is going to get it all right, not even the most hardworking ones among us. We are saved by grace, not our own efforts. This font proclaims that even babies who can't hold their heads up yet, who may never grow up to claim the faith, are held in a love that will not let them go. At this table, 
we learn that it's set for people of all kinds, including the needy, the ones who can't even find their bootstraps, much less pull themselves up by them. It's all grace. And grace has nothing to do with being even. And if this makes you uncomfortable, you're not alone. You have a friend and a famous church heretic, a British monk named Pelagius. Pelagius proclaimed that you should, and in fact could, earn your way into heaven. He thought all this talk about grace, it, it made people lazy. It led people to relax their Christian practice, their good deeds. Pelagius was part of the church in the 400s, not terribly long after Constantine made Christianity the official church of the empire. So the church was overwhelmed by the sheer numbers of people, and so the church decided it was better to say, come on in, we'll teach you the faith along the way, rather than saying, you can't come in until you know enough doctrine and until you are demonstrating enough holiness in your daily living. Well, Pelagius felt like that was leading to a watered-down faith. He had high standards for himself and for everyone else around him. He believed that perfection was actually possible at least in terms of living up to the standards that God sets for us. If God asks it of us, then we should be able to achieve it. Why would God ask otherwise? The Ten Commandments, for example, were not just a set of ideals. They were all within human reach if humans just tried hard enough with enough willpower and self-discipline. God made us, Pelagius believed, and would not have made us to fail. So it must be possible for us to live a sinless life if we just do the right things and avoid the wrong ones. And doing everything right, according to Pelagius, was how one found their way to salvation. Well, the church disagreed. Of course, it's never just as simple as that. There were lots of riled up theologians and really long church meetings involved. If you're into church history, you'd recognize the name St. Augustine and the councils of Carthage. But ultimately, Pelagianism was named a heresy. And the church came down on the side of grace. Yes, our behavior as Christians matters, and yes, we are called to pursue righteous living, but what the church has come to believe is that none of us are perfect, not even one. And as the Apostle Paul says, we are justified, we are made right by faith alone. We stand in grace, not by dint of our own effort, but because of the love that has been poured into our hearts through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, for those of us who work hard at being good and chafe at the thought of being in debt, this is a hard truth 
to swallow. But for some, claiming this truth is like fresh air. It's a necessity, a matter of survival. Because of your generosity to UPC's pastor's discretionary fund, Jared is able to take phone calls every Tuesday afternoon from Chapel Hill neighbors who are in need of financial assistance. Last week, he spoke with a young man named Josh. When Josh was young, he struggled with body image and self-esteem. And that feeling of unworthiness persisted and he started using substances to hide his feelings. And it just kept spiraling. Addiction took hold of his life and wrung almost everything out of it. He told Jarrett, if I got what I deserved, I would either be dead or still in cell F at the Alamance County Prison. But instead, Josh is alive and 18 months clean. He's able to see his son every Saturday, living with the help of the Oxford House. After their conversation and after UPC helped him with a bill, Josh sent Jared a clip of him giving his testimony at church, a church where he had learned about grace. Josh ended it by saying, there is nothing that you or I can do to earn the Father's love because it just is. You just have to receive it. Perhaps for others of us, the you just have to receive it is easier said than done. This week, Barry was breaking bread with our outgoing elder for campus ministry, Scott Singleton. Without any knowledge that I was preaching on grace, Barry was sharing with Scott his shock at how many of his PCM students found grace so foreign. I wasn't there at the lunch, so I don't know all the reasons that were cited, but perhaps it's because they don't feel like they deserve it or don't need it as much as Josh did. Perhaps they believe God cannot possibly have that deep a reservoir of love, or they've been told that they have to act a certain way to access it, or fit in a certain mold to receive it, or have a GPA or relationship or body that fits such grace. At some point, Scott said, Barry, it took me until at least my 30s to even glimpse the profundity of grace, and I still need reminders of it every week. So look, church, here we are for our reminder. Once again, gathering around this word, this font and table, because we know, I think, that no matter how many lanyards we make in response, no matter what good works we attempt 
dishwashers we unload, composts we take to church. We are sure as a boy or girl can be that we will never be even. Instead, we are recipients of an amazing grace.